Tonight we're, we're starting a new series in CBS for this spring. You know, if you were here last semester, we studied our way through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, not written by the Apostles themselves, but, by, but it is a faithful summary of what the Apostles taught. In Scripture, it, it was the roots of the, the Apostles' Creed, I said, uh, they actually do go back to the generation, as far as we can tell, the generation just after the Apostles. So probably originally written by people who actually knew personally the, some of the Apostles. So, um, And the roots of that series, why did we go through the Apostles' Creed? The roots in my thinking and praying, preparing for last fall, the roots of that series really came out of the long absence that we had because of COVID. Um, and if, you were, if you're here and you're freshman, you probably didn't feel that as much as if you're sophomore or older, in the sense that in 2020, we were together in the spring, everybody left for, th for spring break and never came back until the fall. And it just was a weird time. COVID was new. Everybody was like, lockdown was stricter and we weren't like in person going to church and it just we all I almost felt like for a little while it was it was we we sort of lost our way of what it felt like to be a church and and um the, the world was just different so it was a good time i felt to remind ourselves when we came back together in august just to remind ourselves of the basics of what it means to be a christian and what what it means to confess our faith as Christians and what it means to be the church and what are the fundamental basic beliefs common to every Christian, like regardless of where or when, regardless of time or place. And so in thinking on, on the Apostles' Creed, we thought about just the basics of Christian doctrine, what it is that you must believe in order to profess to be a Christian in any true biblical and historical, historically meaningful sense right certainly christians believe more than what we find in the apostles creed but they don't believe less than what we find in the apostles creed all right so as we thought about what to study when we come to this semester we decided to build on that to build on our study uh, through the apostles creed not to rehash everything we said but put the focus maybe on giving some more explanation or even more especially more practical application of some of those doctrines that we thought through. Uh, we're calling this series Restored, Restored, to emphasize that as, as people who have come to believe the basic Christian gospel, profess to believe that, laid out so clearly in the Apostles' Creed, that not only have we re been redeemed by the Lord, have, it our, have our sins forgiven, uh, the penalty of our sins taken away through faith in that gospel, but we've also been restored to walk in the newness of life in Christ and, and be molded into the likeness of Christ. And so the question becomes, what does that look like? What does it look like to walk in the newness of life? What does it look like to walk in light of believing in those truths that we looked at in the Apostles' Creed? And um, so I'm going to kick it off with the, the first lesson tonight, but the guys interning with us this year... Um, Brooks and Riley and Dylan, um, they, they're the ones that really crafted this, this series. I, I tasked them and saying, okay, here's what we're doing in the fall. What do you guys want to do in the spring? And this is what the, uh, the Lord led them to do. And so they had a big hand in putting this series together. And so they're also going to have a big hand in teaching it uh, this semester. And so 
we're going to be on a little rotation. Uh, so Brooks and Riley and Dylan are going to help teach this thing along with me. So, but I'm going to kick it off tonight, and I hope this will be a beneficial series to you in your walk with Christ. I asked you to open to Isaiah 40. This is going to be our starting point for what we're going to think about tonight. If you remember to how, about how the Apostles' Creed begins, it begins with the line, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so we began the Apostles' Creed with, with the idea, not just of God, but of God the creator. And you might not know immediately how that truth affects how you wake up and live and carry out your day on a Tuesday, right? Just on a regular old day. Um, but it does more profoundly than you might think. And, uh, and we see that through a, a, another distinction in Christian theology that flows out of this doctrine of God the creator, and that is the creator-creature distinction. Creator-creature distinction. Now, that may not sound exciting at all, but I promise you that idea has profound implications for how you live your daily life um, and how you carry out your days as a believer and as a follower in Christ. So in the few minutes we have tonight, I, I first want to set the stage for where we see this idea in the Bible, creator-creature distinction, what the basic idea is, and then I want to mention one huge area of our lives happens, we encounter it every day where this idea of the creator-creature distinction has profound impact. And it might can help you go throughout your days, all right? How we live. So I could have taken you to any point to illustrate creator-creature distinction. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, and we weren't anywhere to be found at that point. Um, so yes, there's a distinction between us. Could have taken you to Exodus 3, God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. What's your name? I am who I am. Reveals all kinds of characteristics about God that we do not share with him. Creator-creature distinction. But I wanted to start in Isaiah 40 because I think that this chapter, parts of it, leaves the creator-creature distinction an unmistakable reality in our mind. So if you found that place in your Bibles, um, your Bible, uh, look with me as I begin reading. Begin reading in verse 12 and... Uh, we won't read the whole thing. I'll just, I'll tell you where we're, we'll stop and jump around. Beginning in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now skip to verse 25. 
whom then will you compare me? This is the Lord speaking now. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these things. He's talking about the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name. He's named all the stars. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He, give, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray as we begin. Oh, Lord, would you help us, I pray. See you rightly. And in light of seeing you rightly, see ourselves rightly. We can only do that by looking in the pages of your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and authoritative and necessary word. As we uh, look at the scriptures tonight and think about the implications and inferences we draw from it, would you give us eyes to see you and the truth and give us hearts to embrace and love what we come to understand with our minds by your help? Would you please give us all ears to hear? Give me the help that I need to teach, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you, you could see what I was talking about, even as we read that passage. I mean, it begins with a series. It carries on for a little while, a series of who has kind of questions. Who has measured the waters? And, and every question posed to us elicits the answer that only the Creator God has done that, right? Only, only He holds in the hollow of his hand, as it were, the waters of the ocean that to us, when we stand beside it, we feel so tiny. It seems so vast. We cannot see the other side of it. And he holds it, as it were, in the palm of his hand. It looks so limitless to us. We, we consult, according to this passage, we consult God for knowledge and understanding. It's never the other way around. Right? All of the nations are before him, and there is nothing before him. It, 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 it issues all that, issues in this question. It's actually repeated in a couple of ways in this chapter. To whom, to whom then will you liken God? Or the way God asks it in verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? says the Holy One. There is no created thing comparable to the one who created it. The distinction between God and His creatures, me and you, is infinite. Right? In every way imaginable, it is. Here's, here is how that idea has been classically put 
in, for example, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Just hang on and listen. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and, 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 in and unto, that's hard to say, in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite infallible and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or, un, or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. That's God. Or here's just another place, same confession, a little bit updated language this time. Though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except through God's voluntary condescension. That's the creator-creature distinction. It, it is really, and I cannot say this any more strongly. It is really the foundational truth to everything else we say or profess to believe about God. This is the ground floor. Creator, creature, distinction. And it's foundational to our lives of obedience before Him. Like, He is not like us. He is infinite. We're finite. He exists in and of himself. We exist at his will and command. He's independent. We are dependent. He is the, he is the fullness of every perfection. And every good and ability that we have is derived in us from him. He knows all things. As the confession said, all things are open before him. But we know in part. Because all knowledge, and he knows it independently, because all knowledge that could possibly exist issues forth from his will. He knows it independently. We know it dependently. And God is, is not, he's not just a better, more perfect version of us as if it's merely a quantitative thing, it's qualitative. He is other than us. We don't have categories for it. We, when we try to describe God, because He is infinite and we're finite, our minds, our thoughts, and the language that we even use to capture our thoughts into words, because all that's finite, 
we have an easier time describing what God is not than what, saying what exactly He is. We know what out of bounds are, but it's hard to put into words what He actually is. It's crazy. Language fails us. Comparison fails us. Imagination fails us. Comprehension fails us. Theologian Herman Bovink said a hundred years ago, this idea of the incomprehensibility of God and of the unknowability of His essence is the starting point and the fundamental idea of Christian theology. Neither in creation nor in recreation does God ever reveal Himself exhaustively. He cannot, hear this, he cannot fully impart himself to creatures. For that to be possible, they themselves would have to be divine. There is, therefore, for the creature, no exhaustive knowledge of God. There is no name that makes his essence known to us. There is no concept that fully encompasses him. There is no concept, there's no description that fully defines him. What lies behind Revelation, this is Revelation, what lies behind this is completely unknowable. We cannot approach it either by our thought, our imagination, or our language. End quote. It cannot be stressed too much that this is the biblical idea of God. To whom will you liken me? To whom will you compare me? There is an infinite distinction between the creator and the creature. And I want to suggest one very practical, because that sounds high and lofty, esoteric. I want to suggest one very practical area where this is immensely helpful and pertinent. But before I mention what it is, we need to be honest with ourselves and with Scripture that this is the precise point in our thinking and in our worldview on a daily basis where we sinfully go astray. This creator-creature distinction. This is precisely what Paul said in Romans 1, verses 24 and 25, where we read, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever and ever. Every sinful, true for you, true for me, Every sinful thought, word, or deed has its root in that twisted reality. Why do we lie? Because we worship and serve our own image, our own created image, our own created rep reputation above the Creator who has commanded us to be truth-tellers at any cost. Why do we lust? Because we worship in our minds, we worship and serve 
the physical bodies of creatures, right? And, and, and instead of worship and, and, and worshiping and serving our twisted desires toward that end, instead of worshiping the, cre- the Creator and treating His creatures with holy respect as image bearers. We go wholeheartedly astray in a thousand ways precisely because we have completely lost sight of the infinite distinction between creator, creature. There is no fear of God before our eyes on a lot of Tuesdays. Even as we claim with our mouths to know Him and love Him and worship Him, heart of hearts, we know it's true. But as that sad reality falls heavy on our hearts and our consciences, even as I say it, hopefully, hopefully leading us as we sit here now to repentance in our hearts, do remember how we know God at all. If He is that incomprehensible and unknowable, we actually know this one who is unknowable and incomprehensible in and of himself because he has chosen to reveal himself to us not only in his fearsome holiness but in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So in that light, we can actually humbly sit in the comfort that Christ gives us in his forgiveness and in his grace. And now we can think properly about this truth of the creator-creature distinction and why it matters to me on a Tuesday, right? Not just in my thinking, but in my living. Not just in my outlook, but in my decisions. And as I said, I want to mention one particular area of practical application. If you're, if you're a senior here, you may have ta- heard me talk about this before, but it's pertinent all the time. And that is, this creator-creature distinction is a very helpful framework to think about our knowledge of and, and obedience to the will of God for our lives. How do you know the will of God for your life? Perennial question. What is God's will for my life? What is, my, what is God's will for me for this or for that? I want to think about that for a minute. How, how, what is the connection between creator-creature distinction how do I know God's will for my life or for tomorrow or for whatever? Well, how, where, where's the intersection of those two things? Well, uh, if you want to jot down this reference, it's a good, good memory verse. You can just flip there and look or you can just listen. Let's begin with what God tells us in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Easy to remember. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Let's just read that one more time because I heard pages flipping. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Think about these words. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever 
that we may do all the words of this law. That is nothing but the creator-creature distinction applied to knowledge of God and what can we know of him and of his will. God the creator is omniscient. He alone knows all things, things that to us are secret things in that verse. And hence, all, all the creature can know is what he has willed for us to know, and all we can know of him is what he has willed to know in his word, the things that are revealed in this verse, right? Secret things be belong to the creator, revealed things belong to the creature. How does this practically affect my life? It affects deeply our decision-making in life on a Tuesday. <laughs> like, it, it affects how I can understand knowing the will of God for my life. Uh, uh, of, the, of the will of God in a particular situation in my life. Like, how I go trying to ascertain what that is. Here we, here, here's what we apply, here's how we just apply this scripture. The secret things belong to the Lord. The things that are revealed, though, belong to me. Secret things. God, that's, secret things are like God as he knows things. Things revealed are us and how we know things. That's two different levels of knowledge. God knows secret things, right? God knows and he has a perfect will for your life every down to the minutest detail of your life he doesn't just know it he knows it because he foreordained it right so the tiniest little detail of your life for the next second of your life and now the next second and now the next second he knows it everything knows tomorrow as well as yesterday But what he has chosen to reveal to us is not that. He has chosen to reveal everything we need to know in Scripture for every decision and for every good work. And if you think about it, this would be incredibly good news that all we need to, it would be incredibly good news to know that, hey, all we need to know to walk in God's will is found right here in the Bible. Yay. But for some people, maybe many people, maybe most people, it's unsettling because the Bible doesn't seem to say anything specifically about so many decisions I have to make. Like, we simply want to be told if I should accept the job offer or not. Where does the Bible actually say if this is the person I should ask on a date, whether or not I should ask him on a date, should I marry him? Where does the Bible tell me that I should live after I graduate? Where does the Bible tell me what my major should be? Should I drop this class? Seriously, the Bible seems to be sufficient for some things but it's almost like there's just no way the Bible could give me wisdom about this or that. <laughs> Silly. The problem 
comes from the conflict between what we want and what God knows we need. And we want specific instructions. God gives us general counsel. That's really the rub. We know, like we already said, that a sovereign, omniscient, creator God has a specific will for every specific circumstance, and we believe we need to know that specific will. That's us inverting creator-creature. I'm the creature, but I need to know the creator's knowledge. We believe we need to know that, but have you ever really thought about that assumption? We felt it a bunch. Have you ever really thought about that assumption that I need to know what I need to know the specifics that God knows? What's the what's the what's the implication of that assumption? I need to know that. What's the implication? That assumption that I need to know what God is not telling me, it, it, it entails this, that God has withheld from us the very thing that he commands us to understand and to know. That's what that action tells. If you say, God, what is your will for X? And it's very specific, and I don't know it, and I need to know it. You're implying that God has withheld from you the very thing that you feel like you're supposed to know. It's God's fault. But if there is a characteristic of God that is prominent in this issue, according to Scripture, it is the goodness of God. Like, the goodness and generosity of God. Scripture tells us explicitly the posture of God's heart, as it were, toward us when we deeply desire to know His will. Here's James 1.5. You know it well, probably. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If we lack wisdom, if we lack an understanding of what he would have us to do in any given situation, Bible says, ask him. And he's generous, and he's not going to find fault with your asking. But what's he going to give you? What's he going to give you? He, whatever it is, he's going to give it to you generously. Well, it says what he's going to give you is wisdom. If anyone likes wisdom, ask God, and he'll give it generously. Wisdom. Okay. Wisdom in what form? What does wisdom look like when he gives it to you? Well, we've said his will is revealed to us in the scriptures in written form. So wisdom would seem to be insight and understanding in how to apply the written word to my specific situation. And again, God is good and he desires us to know how the wisdom that he's graciously given in his word is sufficient for our every need. He wants us to know that. And, 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 and so, um, as we seek to walk in his will, whatever we find in the scriptures, it may not be perfectly specific to our situation, but it is perfectly sufficient. Okay? 
may not be perfectly specific, but it is perfectly sufficient. Why, though, does God do it this way? Why doesn't he just audibly tell us? Why doesn't he... Why doesn't, why doesn't he just audibly say it? Why doesn't he just give me a thought? Why doesn't he just bring me the creature up into his creator room? Isn't there some way that when we need to know and desire to know precisely, precisely the way we should go or the decision we should make, isn't there some way that God could accommodate us like he did for some people in the Bible, they actually did. I mean, and also, is it not admirable? Is it not admirable that, that we desire strict instructions? I want to know specifically, God, so I can obey you specifically. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that admirable in my heart? Sure. It's admirable to desire to know exactly what God would have us do in every circumstance so that we could do it. But you have to then ask yourself, is there something that God might desire more? More from us and for us than just this. Here are my marching orders. March. Maybe God wants something more from us than just marching. Well, perhaps not mere obedience. Mere obedience to a detailed plan given to us ahead of time, but maybe instead obedience that is accompanied by and flows out of growth in godly instincts and wisdom. Maybe that's what he wants. And we don't develop, I don't develop in my mind, in my heart, I don't develop godly instincts or or grow progressively in biblical wisdom just by following direct marching orders at every step. We develop godly instincts and biblical wisdom by steeping ourselves so deeply and so constantly in this Scripture so that when an issue or a situation arises, we already instinctively know the way we should go or how to frame the issue in our minds, or how we ought not to go. Greater sanctification happens when we are faced with a decision, a hard one, and we do the hard work of searching the Scriptures and asking God for His wisdom, and then humbly and prayerfully just make a decision. Right? Just make a decision and do it in an effort to honor the Lord in it. Lord, I, I, this is the decision I make. This is what your word says. This is the wisdom I think that it's giving me. Please bless my efforts to honor you and decide. Just do. Right? And the Lord has... That's where sanctification comes from. Wrestling and deciding. Wrestling and deciding. And the, and the interesting thing is, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, God has told you, your sanctification is His will. So, in wrestling and deciding, you're being sanctified, and that is His will. Okay, so, what if I, what if I, what if I here's the decision, 
here's what your word says. I want to I make a decision that's, that's based on what I read here. Please bless this, Lord, and just decide. What if, though, I miss something better that God had planned? FOMO is a real thing. But let me just tell you, FOMO comes in two forms. One is self-centered. The other is God-centered. The first is self-centered because it is a fear that something better might come along that I want to do. And this isn't even really trying to follow the will of God at all. It's trying to follow your own will. It's just following the desires of your heart. So we need to repent of that kind of FOMO. The other is God-centered because it is genuinely a fear that if I gather the courage to just make a decision based on the principles of God's Word, there is a chance that God might have had something better for me that I missed out on because I just made a decision. Even trying to be, I, I, you might say, oh, I just tried to take two matters too much in my own hands. Did you? For one, this assumes, this assumes God might have had something better. That assumes that the simple blessing found in walking in simple obedience to God's Word is not that better thing. It assumes that there is something better than that, than just walking in simple obedience to His Word. There's not. Having the courage simply to make a decision based on the principles of God's Word as a means to walking in God's will, that is the path to something better. That is the path. That's not, I might have missed out on the path. That is the path. That's the path to something better rather than losing sleep in needless anxiety that he won't show you specifically what you should do. For one who is genuinely trying to make decisions in accordance with Scripture but who also fears that in so doing we might miss out on God's best, neither understands nor truly believes that God is sovereign and he can bring his best into our lives in his own time and in his own way. And that he will do it as we are obedient in the small things. But what if I make the wrong decision? I mean, come on. The only wrong decision is a decision to sin. <laughs> so as long as in your mind I'm not deliberately sinning, you're probably not making a wrong decision. Just and just because a decision you make might lead to a difficult path doesn't mean you made the wrong decision. If that's true, Paul made all kinds of horrible decisions. No. Walking in God's will often means it's going to be very hard. Bottom line is this. The path of God's will is wider than we think. 
how can we say that? Because, because of the nature of what he's told us. If, 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 the, if the path of God's will was really narrow, he would have told us more specific things, but he didn't. He told us general things, which means his path is wide. If God has only told us his general will, and if, if God the creator knows all things, and he has willed that we the creature know only in part, then if we wholeheartedly seek to make decisions based on that revealed wisdom, then we will be walking in God's will. We will. And if we wholeheartedly seek to make wise and good decisions based on the wisdom of the Bible, God will sovereignly ensure his specific will that we, we're not privy to will also be carried out in our lives. God is the creator. We are the creature. Don't seek the knowledge that he alone possesses. Make full and glad use of the knowledge that he has given you to know. That he's given you to have. He wrote it down for you so that you wouldn't forget it. He has given us enough in his word to do his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's, it's like, man, actually, actually keeping the creator-creature distinction at the forefront of our minds. And, and it's the lens through which we think about making decisions. That's very freeing. It's really freeing. My goodness, it's stressful trying to be the creator. Let me just close. I'm going to close with one of my favorite passages in a book that I heartily recommend to you on this issue. It's called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. You can tell from the title what his view is. And he says this in that book, simply put, God's will is your growth in Christ's likeness. That is God's will for your life, that you might be like Christ. God promises to work all things together for our good, that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. And to the degree which this sounds like a, lame, like, like a lame promise is the degree to which we prefer the stones and scorpions of this world to the true bread from heaven. God never assures us of health, success, or ease, but he promises us something even better. He promises to make us loving, pure, and humble like Christ. In short, God's will is that you and I get happy and holy in Jesus. So, he says, go marry someone, provided you are equally yoked and you actually like being with each other. Go live somewhere in something with somebody or nobody, but put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future, and for God's sake, start making some decisions in your life. Don't wait for the liver shiver. 
If you are seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, you will be in God's will, so just go out and do something. There is hardly anything more basic to the Christian life than how do I make decisions that please God? How do I walk in holy obedience to Jesus? And there is no better place to begin than by remembering that there is a distinction between the Creator and me, the little creature. There's a distinction between not just Him and me, but His knowledge and mine. And even though we, the creature, feel very ill-equipped and weak sometimes, He, our Creator, knows exactly what we need, and He gives generously when we humble ourselves we ask for his help and his wisdom, trusting in his word. And it's just as simple as that. So that's the lesson for tonight. Restored creator-creature distinction. Super handy in life. We're going to pray in groups before uh, we close in song tonight. And um, here's how I would like for you to pray in, as you break up in groups of two or three and pray. I want you to Pray first, uh, just praise God that there is none like him. There's none like him. Just, just praise him for that. Secondly, just confess to him how often you have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You've twisted that up. I have. Confess that to him. Ask for his forgiveness. Ask for his wisdom and decision making, right? And then lastly, pray for our new president. I know it sounds out of left field, but he was inaugurated today. So let's pray for him, all right? Let's spend the next few minutes praying.